Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Every single plant has its own unique mix of fiber. And because of that, it's going to feed a unique mix of bacteria that live in your colon. Your food choices will reflect themselves in the makeup of your microbiome. When you eat a certain food, you eat a tomato. The microbes that thrive when you eat a tomato are going to multiply. On the flip side, if you take the tomato out of your diet, the microbes that I just described that thrive, they actually recede, they're starving. They're not getting the nutrition that they need in order to be able to thrive and grow. So when we create a diverse diet with as many different types of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts, legumes, every single plant in that diverse diet is supporting a different community of microbes. That's Dr. Will Bolsowitz, or Dr. B. And this is episode 102 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey friends, how you doing today? I hope you've been keeping well. We're in for a real treat today. It's always good to have Dr. B, Dr. Will Bolsowitz on the show, this time for his fifth appearance. It's hard to believe episode 17 was such a long while ago. The episode that went viral and has since reached hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people across the world. Looking back and reflecting on the success of that episode, I I knew it was going to be a special episode going into it. I had a personal fascination for exploring gut health and had come across Dr. B. I'd never heard him him speak and, and certainly hadn't seen him on a podcast, but immediately I could see this was a guy that ticked the boxes as a guest on the show. Firstly, he he knew his stuff. He was breaking down science on gut health in ways that I hadn't seen. Secondly, he was he was relatable. And, and thirdly, he he wasn't trying to sell anything. He genuinely wanted to share information to clear the confusion on so many areas of gut health that are unfortunately widely misunderstood, usually due to some form of commercial agenda. The success of that episode was really the combination of a world-leading expert who has a talent for breaking down complex science and being super relatable and genuine, and a topic that at the time was rapidly picking up pace in terms of public interest, gut health, and how we can optimize it. He's since been on the show another three times, all of which have been crowd favorites and are in today's show notes for those who may want to make their way through them. And I'm positive, once you do listen to those episodes, your knowledge on gut health will be immediately upgraded. Before we get into today's episode, In case there are any new listeners here today, uh, thank you for joining. My name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast, a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist. And I'm glad that you've managed to to find the show and I really do hope you get something out of today's episode that helps you become more mindful and conscious of the way that you live. That's what each of these episodes is all about, non-judgmental, non-preachy space, to talk about diet, to talk about being mindful of our decisions. 
and an opportunity to sit down with inspiring people from all over the world, doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, athletes, people who have overcome chronic disease, and generally folks that are working hard to create positive change in the world. So what can you expect from today's episode in particular? Really, this is a a follow-on from our previous episodes with new uncharted areas of of gut health explored, plenty of science, knowledge bombs, and, and practical information, as always, to help you upgrade your gut health. But most of all, this episode is really about celebrating. Celebrating Dr. B's new book, Fiber Fueled, a book that I can categorically say is a game changer. Not only is this book going to help a tremendous amount of people around the world who have personally battled with poor gut health, things like IBS, bloating, intolerances, etc., and and tried handfuls of gut protocols without luck, but it's going to empower health professionals to bring a more evidence-based approach to managing patients with gut health issues. And books like this don't just happen. They take a lot of hard work, determination, years of study, sleepless nights, and at times the writing process can can really be an emotional roller coaster as you battle with things like writer's block, how to break down something super complex whilst maintaining enough science, working out what bits to cut or what bits to stay within your word count, etc. I'm going through this process now, so I know the feeling. And I can honestly say I'm so proud of the finished product. I'm so proud of, of my friend Dr. B for taking the time to take his knowledge, experience, and passion and bring it together in such an enjoyable and easy-to-follow book that, unlike so many gut health books out there, is actually evidence-based for the world to benefit from. He's done a, a tremendous job and his work truly does deserve to be celebrated. Finally, it should be said that this episode was recorded in New York City at the very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States. Lockdowns and social isolation were, were not in place, but things were, were definitely starting to get a little weird. So if you see videos from the episode that hopefully provides some context. We certainly weren't ignoring any of the state's advice. I think that's enough to preface today's episode. Sit back, relax, and please do enjoy Dr. B episode number five on the Plant Proof Podcast. Dr. B, ready to make some magic again? I'm ready, my friends. It's so good to see you. Uh, the <laughs> The Australian James Bond, as I've coined in the past <laughs> episodes. It's nice to catch up with you, man. It is. It's good to uh, be here in, in New York. You can probably hear the sirens there. Um, it's right. a true urban experience that your listeners are having right now. That's right. Down Lower East Side. Fiber Fueled, the plant-based gut health program for losing weight, restoring your health, and optimizing your microbiome. I've been looking forward to this one. And... I can say I was lucky enough to be able to, to read through it before it hits the shelves and you've done an amazing job. I can't, I can't wait to, to share it with my community and friends and, and hear their feedback. I know it's going to be so useful for people. Tell me 
how it feels sort of now that you're on the cusp of this book getting out there into the world, how, how that feels for you. Are you excited? I mean, it's, it's hard for me to put into words how I feel right now. This has been a tremendous passion project. You know, you sit here and you say that you feel lucky to have read the book before other people had the chance to. And I, I feel lucky that you brought me on your show because that's where it started for me, honestly. So, you know, our show came out, the original episode was, was uh, July of 2018. And the response that we had from the, the Plant Proof community was overwhelming. I mean, it really, you know, it made you and I really good friends. And it motivated me to want to do something with that energy. And so literally a month later, August 2018 is when I started this journey. And now here we are. And May 12th, the book will launch. And it's going to launch, If by the way, if you're looking for it under the spelling F-I-B-E-R, because <laughs> that's how we do it in the US. I was going to pull you up on that. Hey, you know, actually, fueled is spelled differently in you're Australia kidding. too. You're kidding. It's one L. Oh, sorry, it's one L in, in the American spelling uh-huh. and it's two L's in, in uh, Australia and, and the United Kingdom. Oh, shoot. That's a problem. <laughs> you know why? Because I bought the, I bought the website F-I-B-R-E-Fueled.com, uh, but I bought it with the American spelling. So I have to go back and buy more okay, websites well, now. Yeah, before, before <laughs> this one gets uh, uploaded, oh, make sure you do that. Yeah. <laughs> so pre-sales are happening now? Pre-sales are happening now. And, you know, I'm just so excited to get this out there because really, truly, at the end of the day, I had to write this book. I feel like there was something that compelled me to put this together. And, you know, I turned into a man on a mission in a way that I've never been in my entire life, waking up early, going to bed late, completely focused, you know, doing everything that I could to try to to make this the best book I possibly could. And I can't wait for people to check it out. 10 or 15 years ago, did you envisage that you would be writing your own book on gut health? No, none of this was expected. You know, even when I started my Instagram account, it was not this plan. You know, did I started you start that in 2018. I started it in, in 2016. 2016. Yeah, I'm a little under four years since I started the Instagram account. And, you know, when I started, I mean, in my mind, if I had 500 followers, that would have blown my mind. Was that sort of just to help reach more people in your local area? Was that the initial idea? Or? I felt like there was a story to tell. You know, I felt like I had come across something that had transformed my own health. I lost 50 pounds, got rid of anxiety, dropped my blood pressure. I mean, I honestly feel like I reversed aging. It transformed my own health. It transformed the health of my patients. And I felt like I had to bring this message public. Like it was not enough to just sit in a closed room and talk to patients Mm one-on-one. People need to hear this. So you started at the Gut Health MD. Is that the original name straight up? No, no, the original name was not that. <laughs> I went through a couple of renditions. What, was, what, was, what were the early ones? Oh, man. Okay. So uh, it's kind of funny, actually. I don't know if I've ever shared this on a podcast. The first, the first name was Happy Gut Healthy Life. Okay? okay. And I realized that... Happy Gut Healthy Life. Right. Happy Gut Healthy Life. And then I realized that it was too long and people didn't know like what that was about or that I was a doctor. So then I shortened it to Happy Gut MD. Okay. Okay. And I was Happy Gut MD for a while. And then I realized that someone else, another doctor, had written a book called Happy Gut. Oh, no. And so I was like, <laughs> you know what? I, I can't continue with this name. So I looked to see what was out there. And I was pleasantly surprised that the Gut Health MD was there. Because I think that kind of gets the point across. Absolutely. That's what we're talking about. Now, before gastroenterology, if I'm remembering correctly, you actually, you wanted to get into pediatrics, right? Yeah. I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. I, I actually you know, spent all my years as a pre-med planning that way. So it could have, could have been the Bub Health MD. 
<laughs> Is that right? Five health only. We could be sitting here and having a completely different conversation. That's right. No, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> so what made you sort of change that mindset from from being interested in pediatrics to then discovering gastroenterology and sort of falling in love with that area of, of medicine? So we have to rewind back to 2005. That was the year that this happened. It was my third year of medical school, which is a really, really interesting, fun year because you get to taste a little bit of everything in medicine. So you do like a couple of weeks of peds, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks of OBGYN, surgery, surgical subspecialties. And, you know, the bottom line is it's a year of growth and discovery. And what I found is that although I love children, like there's no one on the planet that I love more than my own children. Although I love children, taking care of children when they're sick is hard. And I always got really frustrated with the parents because they were either not really caring about their kids, which bothered me, or they would be like in your face. Then you're like, whoa, 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 give me some space. So it just didn't feel like the right fit for me. And so what led me to gastroenterology was that I wanted something that would combine the ability to use my mind and dissect problems, complex problems, and figure out how to attack them with medicine. And at the same time, use my hands to fix problems very quickly. And there's, there's only a few fields where you can actually do that. And gastroenterology probably gives you the best balance or the best of both worlds. Like I said, I'm 50% in the clinic seeing patients and I'm 50% doing procedures. And I guess the way that you're managing your patients from when you first graduated and started op, uh, working as a gastroenterologist to now has probably changed as the science in this space has evolved. I am constantly trying to keep up with what is cutting edge in terms of the science. You know, and that's just the nature of who I am because, because I take my job very seriously. It's very personal to me. So when a patient asks me a question like, hey, hey doc, what should I eat for my IBS? Or like, what's a good, what are good foods to try to keep my Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis in remission? I can't help but be the guy who goes home and spends time reading on that subject to try to find the correct answer. So my evolution is actually just mm-hmm. guided by my patients asking me questions and then discovering the science that exists that I wasn't necessarily taught in medical school. So in many ways, it's this book, because this book is the cutting edge science on gut health. In many ways, your patients have, have taught you a lot about the information that you've, you've shared. I feel like that is one of the major strengths that I have is that, yes, I am trained in clinical research. Like I have a master's degree in clinical research. But on the flip side, I'm, I'm a clinician. This is what I do. This is my day job. So I'm 100% on the ground with real patients, with real problems on a day-to-day basis and finding solutions for them. And so what you have in this book is you have me putting into words what I've discovered as solutions for my patients. Okay. So tell me a little bit more. I'm interested being sort of, well, going through the writing process myself at the moment. I'm a little, little interested in what that process look like, how you, A, got into the zone to write, and also the sort of a little bit about the team you're working with. I know that you've got a registered dietitian that's helped put some incredible recipes together, this sort of stuff. I, I guess to pick up where we were before talking about, you know, my decision in August of 2018 to write this book, fast forward three months, November of 2018 is when I got my book deal with Penguin Random House. So right off the bat, I started basically lining up my team and I started writing in January of 2019. So, and this was a this was a process where literally I did not take a day off. I would wake up at five in the morning, go to the coffee shop, get my coffee, my oatmeal, sit there, hack out about two, two and a half hours worth of work, 
go to the office, do my job, come home, see my kids, go back to the coffee shop, a couple more hours before you go to bed. That was my Monday through, fr- that was Monday through Friday. And then Saturday and Sunday, you just wake up and you go to work. So I did, I literally did not take a day off from January until May 1st. And on May 1st of 2019, I delivered the first draft to my publisher. And, and how much editing was it? <laughs> I had a lot to say. So I was supposed to deliver <laughs> 80,000 words and I brought forward 130,000. Okay. So I kind of I kind of overshot it. I had so much that I wanted to get out there. And so we had to kind of dial it back a little bit and take some of the things that were maybe side conversations and get them out of the way so that we could just have the core conversation about plant-based gut health as the centerpiece. And so we went through an editing process that started then and you know really the book was basically done October of 2019. But, you know, I still continue to do like, you know, pass here, pass there, do some edits here and there. And I'll tell you, the surprising part is the amount of work that you do when you're done writing the book. I thought, okay, the book's done. (laughs) I'm going to chill. I'm going to rest. I'm going to take a break, right? It's actually revved up to a whole new level. Mm -hmm. And and the reason why is because at the end of the day, like, I want this book to be out there. I want people to read it. I think it could transform their lives. And in order for me to be successful in that, the word has to get out, right? So it can get out to the plant-proof community and that's wonderful. And I want, I want everyone in the plant-proof community to enjoy this book and tell their friends, but it has to go beyond that too. Yeah. So what's, in, what's in store from a, a PR point of view? What do you got planned? Basically what I'm doing right now is, is a lot of podcasting, having a lot of conversations. It's the best format, right? When you want like the, the long format allows you specifically to break down the science yeah, on what is like a quite a complex topic for many people. It's hard to sort of completely cover it or describe the book in the area in a, in a 20 or 30 second little clip or something. Yeah. It's kind of like Instagram. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I put together Instagram posts meant to be educational. I'm intentionally making it simple for people to mm-hmm. understand. And there's always more that I want to say. And sometimes people will clip me on that and that's okay because they're bringing up good points. You know, sometimes they'll say, oh, well, what about this? And I want to include those points too, but you just can't have that long form conversation. So yeah, I feel like these conversations are a good way to get the message out. And I'm trying to hit as many different people as possible. So like, of course, here with Plant Proof Community, but, you know, going out and talking to the paleo community. Yeah, it's important. Yeah. And let, and let them hear the science, mm. right? Because if you take a paleo diet and you tweak it, you can make that a pretty healthy diet pretty quick. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot we already agree on, right? Right. In terms of at least they're, they're not advocating for a, a, an ultra-processed food diet. That's a great start. Right. That's 60% of the calories in the standard American diet. Yeah, and, there's, and, and if you actually implement the paleo diet the way that it's supposed to be, it's a predominantly plant-based diet. Yeah, and, and the problem is people sometimes pervert that and, and turn it into, well, you should have like, you know, paleo-certified bacon. And what is that? You and I have had some interesting conversations on the paleo diet and evolution, I think, whether it was in previous episodes or or off air. Talk me through what you think about the sort of the diet that our ancestors ate, may have eaten, what we know about it, and how relevant that is to what we should be eating today. Sure. I mean, let's let's start with the question of what did our ancestors eat? To define one Paleolithic diet is a bad idea. I mean, it's comical. It's comical to pretend that there was one diet that people ate. They lived in a time of famine. They ate to survive. Our ancestors started in Africa and they radiated out across the globe. And wherever they found themselves, they were forced to adapt to their environment because the rules remained the same, which is you need to eat to survive. 
if you don't survive, you don't pass on your seed, meaning you don't have children. And if you don't pass on your seed, then you're no longer part of evolution. That's Darwinism. That's survival of the fittest. That's the way that it works. So people ate to survive and they had to rely on local, you know, basically whatever it was in the ecosystem that they lived in, they had to derive a diet from that. You can't say that it's exactly this or exactly that. There's some examples that are more meat heavy. There's more, some that are more plant heavy. You know, it's the full spectrum. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of debate online about, was it meat that led to Homo sapiens brain growing or was it the discovery of, of tubers or was it the discovery of fire? And like you said, that it's probably not that relevant given that most important thing during that those times was just surviving, right. getting hitting that age where they could procreate. Right. But if we sort of just extend this a little bit further, how about understanding what our ancestors ate in general and whether that should inform how we eat today? Right. That's a great question. So I think that where I would begin is this. Does the evolutionary basis for our diet, which is what the Paleolithic diet is all about, does the evolutionary basis accomplish our goals in 2020? Because our goal in 2020 is longevity. And along with that, health span, right? You want to live a long life and you want to be healthy during the years that you're here. You don't want to be living and sick the whole time. Does the Paleolithic diet based on evolution accomplish that? And the issue with this concept is that evolution does not select for longevity beyond procreation. So take a moment and think about that. If you have to hit the pause button and just think about this, because the issue is that people who survived during the Paleolithic times, they survived purely to have children and your seed gets passed on, right? So that was natural selection. The person who is stronger was around long enough to have children. Did that have anything to do with living to 80 years or to 90 years and being healthy during those later years? No, it had nothing to do with that. You could be, you know, in 2020, completely unhealthy with tons of medical problems and you will survive long enough to have children, but that doesn't mean that you're going to have longevity. Mm. So when we talk about longevity, I think we need to look in a different direction rather than saying, oh, what are we adapted to from an evolutionary basis? Evolution's not trying to give us that. Mm. I think one of the confusing things as well is that today we, ha- we do have increased lifespan compared to people in the Paleolithic era. But as you said, that, that doesn't necessarily correlate to increased health span. We have a lot of people that are living with chronic disease, burdened by disease, whose quality of life is, is affected. And ultimately, if you look at all of the converging lines, whether it's yourself talking about gut health and longevity, or it's uh, looking at populations like the Blue Zones, or David Sinclair talking about yeast and, and mice, there is a common theme around how we should fuel ourselves if we are wanting to increase our health span and live for longer. 100% there's a common theme. And, and what it is, is it's an anti-inflammatory diet. So you have to ask your, your, yourself the question, what sort of food and what sort of lifestyle is going to reduce inflammation? And we know that the immune system lives in the gut. And when we nurture a healthy gut microbiome, to me, that is a longevity and health span inducing diet. And it's a plant-based diet. The book Fiber Fueled is a comprehensive guide to restoring your gut, to optimizing your gut. And you know, so I'm giving you exactly the science of how to get there, 600 references. 
But the point is that it's the fiber and it's the plants and it's the variety of plants that make all the difference. And that's what gets you there. That's the anti-inflammatory part. I want to jump into to that. We're going to recap some of the, the content, no doubt, that we've discussed in, in previous episodes as we sort of move through this one and touch on some of the key aspects of the book and, and your overall philosophy and principles that you've, that you've outlined. But you just mentioned a key word there, immunity in the immune system which is, is tightly regulated by gut health, given current circumstances with the coronavirus. Can you talk me through sort of why optimizing our microbiome and looking after our gut health is particularly important from an immunity point of view? Let's start here and say, because if we're going to talk about the coronavirus, we need to first say the first rule is to stop transmission. And to stop transmission, that's you accomplish that by spreading out, going into our spaces, not going into, into crowded public places and things of that variety, right? That's the first rule. But the second rule is to fortify yourself as much as you possibly can to protect yourself from the effects of the virus when it comes to attack your body. 70% of the immune system lives in the gut. It is literally one layer of cells separated from your gut microbiota one single layer of cells, and they're in constant communication with each other. They're talking to each other. And the gut, the microbes, act like programmers for the immune system. They're basically calling the shots, dialing it up, turning it down. The gut microbes act like programmers for your immune system. If you damage the gut, that's like taking 30% of your programmers out of the room and expecting whoever's left over to be able to get the job done. And that's when mistakes happen. The immune system can be excessive. And when that happens, you get allergic conditions like asthma or uh, allergic rhinitis. And the immune system can be underwhelming on the flip side. And that's when you have susceptibility to infection or even to cancer. And so there's this connection between the gut and the immune system. And it's particularly relevant when we talk about corona. So I guess that's bringing me to, to dysbiosis which we've spoken about before. And so I just want to clarify. So our immune system can become compromised when we develop dysbiosis. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yes. We have a laundry list of immune-mediated conditions, allergic, autoimmune. And some people would argue that like ulcerative colitis is not autoimmune. It's just immune-mediated. So this entire umbrella of conditions, we have a laundry list that you'll find in my book. Mm. So like type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, celiac disease, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, you just go down the line. And when they've studied these, what they've found is that in patients who have these conditions, they also have damage to the gut. The word is dysbiosis. You'll see people say leaky gut on the internet, but dysbiosis is the better scientific word to use. And this means damage to the gut, a loss of balance. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of these autoimmune conditions, we don't know exactly what causes them yet, right? Is this an area of science that you think we're going to learn a lot more about in the next 10 years and really come to understand how important the gut health was in potentially initiating some of that pathology? I think it starts with the realization that we have seen an explosion of immune-mediated issues over the last 50 years. Asthma increased tenfold in 40 years from 1960 on. We've seen a 300% increase in celiac disease, Crohn's disease, and type 1 diabetes. And I think it's even more than that. And so we're seeing this explosion 
And the, the question is, what is driving that? There's an interesting part in your book, sorry to interject there, that talks to this point, I believe, where you, you talk about countries that are going through, they're becoming more industrialized. Yeah. And as they become more industrialized, their level of these allergic or autoimmune type of diseases are mirroring what's happening already in America and Australia, right? Yeah. So they start ramping up. So, you know, for example, they, they've studied Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis in Brazil. And those two conditions were increasing by more than 10% per year, starting in the late 1980s, as they started to industrialize. So within their own country, it's starting to rev up. And so what is it? What, what, what's a part of the sort of more developed lifestyle that is causing these, do you think? We think it's damage to the gut. Honestly, we think it's damage to the gut. So let me, let me give you an example. There was one study that you and I have talked about offline where they took toddlers who were three months old, literally three months old, and they analyzed the stool in their diaper. And they could identify which toddlers they thought were at higher risk for developing asthma later in life. And they took the stool from those children that they thought were at higher risk for developing asthma later in life, and they transferred it into a mouse that did not have a microbiome. It was a germ-free mouse. And when they did that, what happened? The mice got asthma. So it really suggests that there's causation, mm. that there's causation. Yeah, well, it's pretty compelling because, I mean, the, the other argument is that someone develops an autoimmune condition and then that causes dysbiosis the other way, the reverse sort of causality way. But that study that you're talking about there is suggesting that it, it is causative. It's very interesting to see further research in this area looking at humans. And it's going to have to happen because the autoimmune diseases are becoming a huge, huge issue. The problem is there's so many of them and we really need disease-specific studies. But I mean, literally, there are millions of people across the United States suffering with these problems. So you say it's, it's, it's dysbiosis, right, that you think is, is responsible or partly responsible for some of these conditions. In, in Western developed countries, we're seeing increases in countries that are going through, becoming more developed. If we go even deeper, the cause of that dysbiosis, anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, contraceptive pill, what, what else? Welcome to America, man. Welcome to America. This is our lifestyle. And, and I know that you guys in Australia have a very similar thing. You know, antibiotics left and right. If I were to pick out one medication, there it is. But there are literally billions of doses of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like, like ibuprofen or aspirin that are used on a yearly basis. Those are causing damage to the gut. Our diet, three pounds of food per day. In the United States, the average person, their diet is 60% processed foods and 25 to 30% animal products. Both of those things, we have concerns that they may cause damage to the gut. Do we have much data on other medications like statins and beta blockers and you know, commonly prescribed drugs like those in terms of whether they're affecting the microbiome? So we don't have granular data on an individual drug by drug basis, but there was one study where they took literally hundreds of drugs and analyzed them to see, are there any changes to the gut? Not, not good or bad, just in general. Does it change your gut? And they found that close to 30% of the drugs in the study did induce some sort of change in the gut. Yeah, it's interesting because I know in your book, you also talk to, it's not just the connection with autoimmune diseases when we're looking at dysbiosis, but also there's downstream 
increased risk of chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. Do you feel like some of the way that we're managing these diseases is overlooking part of the root cause? Oh, 100%. Because what we're doing is we're throwing patches, you know, we're, we're, we're slapping down medications, which are a patch, but we're not getting at the root cause of the problem. And, you know, honestly, this is, this is the reason why, for example, our friends, Robbie and Cyrus, wrote a book, Mastering Diabetes, which is a high carb diet for diabetes. And I have told my patients who have type two, if you actually do what they tell you to do, I am 100% sure that you will improve your diabetes. Most patients I'm convinced will completely eliminate it. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book, plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Patients that go through their program get phenomenal results. Right. Their, Their HbA1c, their regular blood glucose control, huge improvements. Most of them, or not, I'm not sure if most of them, but many of them either significantly reduce medications or come off their medications. You believe that some of that will be to do with the, the change and improvement in their microbiome? Oh, 100%. And, and we have studies to prove that. I mean, so let me give you an example. They took a group of young men with metabolic syndrome who had glucose intolerance, not necessarily full-blown type 2 diabetes. They had glucose intolerance. Okay. So they have insulin resistance. And they took them and they gave them a fecal transplant from a person who was healthy without any metabolic issues at all. And what did they see? They saw actually peripheral insulin sensitivity improve in these people, in these humans. Now, how long did this go on for? Only a couple of weeks. And why would that be? Because the problem is that these people, they receive someone else's microbiome, but they don't eat the proper diet to support this new microbiome that they just received. So they get healthier on a temporary basis, but then those microbes start to die off because you're not supplying them with, frankly, the fiber that they need. Okay, so it's important to maintain healthy gut in terms of reducing your chance potentially of of autoimmune conditions. It's important for a number of chronic diseases. I know you also talk about weight loss and clearly being overweight or obese is a significant risk factor again for several, if not all, chronic diseases. Explain that that link to me, how a healthy gut microbiome composition affects a healthy body weight. I like to use an analogy like swimming with a current. All right. So there are people who exist in our society that can eat whatever they want and they're still skinny and we're a little bit jealous. And there's some people who try, 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 and I applaud them for the effort that they put into trying to get control of their weight, and they still struggle to do it. And many times they end up with bariatric surgery. And the question is, what is driving that? And I think that the answer is the gut. And I would make an analogy to swimming with a current. The person who tries, 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 and can't lose weight is swimming against such a hard current that they can't overcome it because of the the way that their microbiome is adapted. And on the flip side, the person who can eat whatever they want and still have a healthy weight is like the person who has the current pushing them in at their back. There was a study in your book, and trust me, I'm not giving away the whole book. There is 
There is stories and studies throughout this this book. It's in, it's a very impressive read. Let me just leave it at that. But there there is a study, I believe, I, it, may, it may have been more of a case study of a woman who had a, a a fecal transplant and then put on weight. She gained a substantial amount of weight. And if you look at her in terms of her body mass index. Maybe explain that study just for the listeners, because I probably didn't explain that that well. Well, no, you did. You did. You did great. I mean, it was a case report. So it was just one person. All right. So, you know, anecdotes most of the time, you know this, Simon, that there's a pyramid in terms of the quality of the research that we look at. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is one of the important messages that you and I want to get across to the, the hierarchy of evidence. There's a hierarchy of evidence, right? And at the top is a systematic review and meta-analysis. You're writing a paper on this, right? I am writing a paper on yeah. this. Actually, it's going to, and I'm going to combine it with my mm-hmm. 600 references so that because right. basically I want people to have a guide to understand. I tried to include this in my book, but it's not going to fit. <laughs> <laughs> you can move it to your website too, <laughs> yeah. just like me. So, so yeah, talk me through this. Talk me through the hierarchy. What I want people to understand is that at the bottom of the hierarchy are two things that many times you'll see people exploiting when they have an agenda. Number one, laboratory studies and mouse studies. Okay. These are not human studies. They don't necessarily translate. You could be taking something, some crazy concentration, or you have something you're mixing in a test tube. It's hypothesis generating. It's hypothesis generating. At that stage. They're helpful. Yeah, definitely helpful. They're definitely helpful. But they always, 100% of the time, require validation. You have to validate it in real people. And then the second lowest are anecdotes. The second lowest are anecdotes. It's the guy that comes into my office and goes, my uncle drank and smoked and he lived till he was 95. Well, okay, that's not a good idea. Maybe he got lucky. (laughs) And maybe he would have lived to 120. Like, honestly, you know? So, and how reliable is that? How valid is it? We don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's purely based on sort of hearsay. Right. So anecdotes and laboratory studies, test tubes, animal studies are at the bottom. Systematic reviews and meta-analyses are at the top. And what we're talking about here is a case report. So it's just an anecdote, okay? But the reason that we got all worked up is because we've seen the same thing in animal model studies. And so what we saw in this patient is that she got a fecal transplant And then she put on a substantial amount of weight. In less than a year, she went from a normal, healthy weight to being obese, like frankly, qualifying as being obese. And she, she, you know, claims that she did not change anything else. She did not change her diet, nothing. That's another one that would be interesting to see in a sort of larger clinical trial. Definitely. Yeah. But I I think it, it raises, it definitely raises some questions, but the bottom line is that if you, if you take humans, okay, and they've done this study a million times. You take humans and you've taken an obese human and you transfer their stool into a germ-free mouse, that mouse will become obese. And if you take a skinny human and you transfer their stool into a germ-free mouse, that mouse will stay skinny and it doesn't matter the calories. The calories could be exactly the same. Coming back to the anecdotes that we were just talking about, something's just sort of come to mind. The other thing that I find about anecdotes is they gain a bit of hype on, on social media or wherever they're published or written about would be in mainstream media because our mind tends to focus on topics or, or people telling us things that we want to hear. So if we hear an anecdote about that 97-year-old who, who, who drank and ate garbage his whole life, we're, we're going to remember that. That's going to stick front of our mind and we're either not going to hear or we're not going to pay attention to the thousands of other people that say their mother died at 70 because of poor diet and poor lifestyle. We don't remember that. We remember the one exception. You know, it's a rule. It's the same with headlines. When there's a a headline telling us 
an unhealthy behavior is really healthy, that's something we want to click on. Right. You know, that grabs our attention. Butter is back. That feels good. Butter is back. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Okay. So that's the sort of link with weight. You've explained that. What else is there? There's the, the gut brain connection. Yeah. The gut brain connection is absolutely fascinating. So first of all, 90% of serotonin, which is the happy hormone, controls our mood, controls uh, our energy levels. 90% of it is produced in the gut, not even produced in the brain. So when I treat a patient with a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is what is often used for to treat depression or anxiety, it's actually affecting the gut more so than it is the brain, which is absolutely fascinating to think about. Now that serotonin does not necessarily cross the blood-brain barrier, but there are precursors to that serotonin that are produced in the gut that do cross the blood-brain barrier. And there are a number of other molecules produced in the gut that happen to get all the way up to the brain, cross the barrier, and have an effect. One of the major molecules that we're going to talk about more in a few moments are short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids on a number of different levels help to promote healthy brain. So once again, the gut is in constant communication with the brain. The brain is in constant communication with the gut. It's really hard to separate the two. And if you want a healthy brain, you have to acknowledge that it starts with gut health. Okay, so that's the brain. What about inflammation? There's a connection, right, between the microbiome composition and inflammation. I would dive straight into dysbiosis. There are three parts to dysbiosis. Let's define it. Okay, what is dysbiosis? Number one, it's damage to the gut microbes. Loss of balance, less good guys, more bad guys, potentially a loss of diversity. That's the first part. Number one, damage to the microbes. Number two, there's breakdown of the tight junctions. The tight junctions are what keep the cells that line the colon held together. And when you break them down, you allow things to to release out of the gut that shouldn't be getting into the bloodstream. Some people would call that leaky gut. I would call that increased intestinal permeability. And the third part is when this happens, when you damage the microbes, when you increase intestinal permeability, what gets into the bloodstream is bacterial endotoxin. And if I were to use one word to describe bacterial endotoxin, that word would be inflammation. You could have a constant slow release of bacterial endotoxin, and that's going to create inflammation throughout the entire body. Which is then an increased risk factor in, in and of itself for many diseases. Many different diseases. You could talk about heart disease. You could go up to the brain and talk about Alzheimer's or Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease. On the flip side, you could also have a surge of bacterial endotoxin all at once. And I've seen this in the hospital in the patient who drops their blood pressure. They get delirious, lose consciousness. They can't breathe. That's a person in septic shock. Septic shock is driven by a surge of bacterial endotoxin in response to an overwhelming infection. You mentioned then the tight junctions and and dysbiosis. I want to jump back a little bit, even earlier than that, sort of microbiome 101, just in case someone's flicked onto this conversation and missed our last five. Yeah. Right? What is the microbiome made up of? And you talk then about the colon. Maybe let's sort of break down the difference between small intestine and large intestine in terms of the anatomy, where they're located and what they're responsible for. Sure. The microbiome, let's start with the word microbe, which is the core part of that word. Microbe is an invisible organism. It's alive. It's as alive as you and I are. It has functions on this planet, all right? But we can't see it. So to us, it feels like they're not there, even though the weight of our microbiome is as much as our brain, which is crazy to think about, all right? These microbes, they cover us from the top of our head down to the tip of our toes, but they're really concentrated here in the gut. 
This is the number one site. The vast majority of the microbes are here. And when I say microbes, there's five different types that we could talk about. The main one is bacteria. We've heard about E. coli. All right. So E. coli is a scary one or Shigella, but most of them are actually good. Most of them are good, like Bifidobacterium and Lactobacillus. These are good bacteria. They want to help you. They want you to survive longer because if you survive, they survive. So the microbes, the bacteria are the number one thing. But then beyond that, we have four other groups and I'll just run through them real quick. Fungi or yeasts. Okay. So Candida is an example of them. Archaea. Archaea are not bacteria and they're not fungi. They're somewhere in between, but they kind of function in the same way. Archaea have been on our planet for like literally 4 billion years. We don't know as much about them, Ron. As, We're just as starting to learn about them. Yeah, yeah. We're just starting to learn about them. And so they've been on this planet for literally 4 billion years. You can find them at the bottom of the ocean in a rift vent. You can find them inside of a volcano and you can find them inside your colon. If, if I were an archaea, I might be in someone's colon, Why? given those three choices. Why do we not know as much about them as we do about bacteria? Okay, that opens up a conversation about the, st- the way that we've discovered this stuff which is that you have to go back to 2006. And at that time, all that we had were Petri dishes to try to culture bacteria. And so the only thing that we could find was something that would grow. But the problem is most of the species will not grow on a culture plate. And so we only knew of about 200 species of bacteria that we could have in our microbiome at the time, 2006. And then there was the discovery. How many? About 200 at that time. And how many is it actually? Okay. The discovery of 16S RNA, it cranked up immediately to 15,000. Immediately. To that 15, must have been 000. exciting for you as a, as a practitioner. Well, we're, that time. we have no clue like what's going on. We're just starting to learn about them. I mean, even right now today in 2020, we're still just learning, to, we're just learning about them. Because it's complex. Imagine discovering 15,000 animals all at once. Is that why most of the, and we're sort of jumping ahead here, but is that why most of the probiotics usually are... are there's only a, few, you know, a handful of different strains that you see written on the front of them. Well, yes. And, and part of it with the probiotics is that they're, they're going to give you what they're capable of growing, right? So they're, they're limited to things that they're capable of growing. They're also limited to what they've identified that have benefits to humans. To be a probiotic, it has to demonstrate a benefit to humans. So there, there's some limitations to the science at this particular moment when it comes to building probiotics. But anyway, this, this technology that came out in 2006, it's called 16-SRNA. It only allows you to study the bacteria and it only allows you to study them to the level of like what we call the genus, which basically means that's like saying, I want to study the Hill family. I can't isolate Simon or your siblings or anything like that. I'm just going to look at your family. All right. Now there's characteristics about the Hill family. There's characteristics about the Bolsowitz family. You would learn some things, but you'd learn more if we could actually study Simon Hill or if you could study Will Bolsowitz. Right. So, so it's not as specific. It's not as specific, but it was a major breakthrough. It was a major breakthrough. And so that opened up the research. But the next breakthrough, Simon, came years later, where we had shotgun metagenomic sequencing. And this truly has opened things up because now we can't just study the bacteria. We can study the bacteria, the fungi, the archaea, the parasites, and the viruses. You can study all of it all at once. And you could say, metagenomic and you're looking at the genetics, or you could say proteomic and you're looking at the proteins that they create, or you could also talk about metabolomics, which I think is the most exciting one. And that's talking about the metabolites, which basically means what they produce. Because at the end of the day, it's not them. It's what they produce. The byproducts. The byproducts of the bacteria. 
It's not just that they're there. It's not their presence. You have to feed them the right stuff and they will produce something from that stuff. So those, they are fiber-fueled. If you fiber-fuel your microbes, you are giving them what they need to produce what I believe is the most healing, most underrated thing in all of nutrition, short-chain fatty acids. Butyrate, acetate, and propionate. Okay, cool. So we're microbiome 101. So there's five main types, bacteria being the one that we know the most about. We're learning a lot about all the other ones as well. These are found in the colon? Predominantly in the colon. Now, here's, here's something that you and I have never talked about that I think is interesting. They are on all outward facing structures, all outward facing structures. So let's break this down. They're on your skin. They're in your mouth, in your nose. They're in your bladder, potentially. Okay. Women can get a urinary tract infection. They, in women, they're in the vagina. And then this seems crazy, but this is the complete truth. Our gut way deep inside of us, the deepest part of us is actually an outward facing structure. Mm. And that is where they're predominantly concentrated. The number of them is staggering, 39 trillion. At a minimum, at a minimum, you are more than 50% microbe, okay? We take all your cells, all of them, including platelets, including red blood cells, which don't even have a nucleus, and you are more than 50% microbe. But if we take the platelets and the red blood cells and we toss them out because they don't have a nucleus and we just look at your, your other cells, you're only 10% human. You're 90% microbe. They outnumber you that much. And it's hard to fathom 39 trillion. It's like, how do we make sense of these numbers? Imagine seeing every single star in the sky. You see all of them, okay? Our Milky Way. Take that number and give me 100 Milky Ways. And that's how many microbes we're talking about right now, predominantly concentrated in your gut. That's crazy. It's, you're right. It's, it's, it's impossible to sort of wrap your head around that. And they're and, alive. And most of the, I mean, plenty of people would go through their entire life not understanding that, not realizing that that's, that sort of symbiotic relationship exists. This is what my book is meant to do, to bring attention to something that we've been ignoring and we should be nurturing. And the book shows you how to actually accomplish that, how to accomplish nurturing your gut. But the key is I myself ignored this. And then I gained 50 pounds and had anxiety problems and had high blood pressure. And it was paying attention to these tenets that I lay out in the book that allowed me to take back my health. And now here I'm, I'm turning 40. I'm supposed to be old. I feel younger than I did when I was 30, man. It's amazing. And I have more people asking me now, like, are you old enough to be a doctor? <laughs> like literally yesterday I, I did a procedure on someone and, and the wife of the patient started laughing at me. And she's like, you are way too young to be my husband's doctor. And I'm like, I, I want to say, ma'am, I'm a grown man. I'm 40. And you've done, I mean, you, you, to be a gastroenterologist, right? It's, it's minimum 12, 16 years of training. If you, include, if you include college, our secondary education after high school, four years of college, four years of med school, three years of residency. I was a chief medical resident at Northwestern. So that was, I made it four. And then it's typically three years of GI fellowship, but I also did an epidemiology fellowship at the Gilling School of Public Health. Just for fun. Because I'm crazy. I don't know. So no, I'm just passionate about what I do. And, I, and, I, and also I'm a nerd. Let's bring it, bring it back to you, dysbiosis, right? Yeah. You mentioned before, and you sort of went through the three components. Yeah. And we ended up with the bacterial endotoxins, which get into the um, blood and cause inflammation. Yeah. 
if we want to prevent that and we want to maintain a healthy microbiome composition, you've been talking to the the importance of fueling these bacteria, these good guys in our colon, our large intestine, so that they produce very healthful secondary sort of metabolites. Let's explore that a little bit more, the short chain fatty acid side of things, and specifically what type of fiber is important, what types of foods are these found in, things like that. All right. So let's start with the dysbiosis question, and then let's bring it back in a moment to talking about fiber. Three parts to dysbiosis, damage to the microbes, increase intestinal permeability, release of bacterial endotoxin. Short chain fatty acids, which are produced by our microbes when they consume prebiotic fiber or prebiotic resistant starch. Short chain fatty acids reverse dysbiosis. They achieve a healthy balance in the microbes. They enrich the good guys, your anti-inflammatory microbes. They directly impair the unhealthy microbes like E. coli or salmonella. They directly impair those microbes. In doing that, they repair the tight junctions. And when the tight junctions get fixed, bacterial endotoxin is not leaking into the blood anymore. When you look at the three steps to dysbiosis, short-chain fatty acids address all three. So the question is, where do we get them? And the answer I've already given to you is fiber, but we need to break down fiber a little bit more. Fiber is a complex topic. There's not even an estimate of how many types of fiber exist in nature. We don't even know, honestly. It could be billions. To keep it simple, we put it into two categories, soluble and insoluble fiber. Insoluble fiber means that if you were to put it in this glass of water and stir it up, it would still have grit. You can't get rid of the grit. All right, that's the roughage. Soluble fiber, if you put it into this glass of water and you stir it up, it disappears. And unfortunately, when you buy food at the supermarket, if it has a label on it, it's not going to break that down. Most of the time, it's not. Sometimes it will. Sometimes it will. I mean, it, it depends. You have to look. But these two types of fiber, these are broad categories, okay? And each type of fiber... Each plant has a mix of its own soluble and insoluble fiber. Every single plant is different. The soluble fiber passes through, you eat it, goes through your mouth, down the esophagus, stomach, 15 feet of small intestine. It is completely unchanged in that moment when it arrives in your colon. It's one of the few things along with resistant starch that has not changed. And it gets down there and your microbes, the anti-inflammatory ones, the good ones, get into a feeding frenzy. They go to town on it. And when they do, what I just described, more good guys, less bad guys, and then the release of short chain fatty acids. That's, they repeat. So that's soluble fiber. That's soluble fiber. And, and resistant starch. Resistant starch. Which is, which is why you see people talking about the potato hack, where you cook a potato, cool it down, and then eat it after or cook it again. Yeah. But um in the cooking and cooling process, you increase the amount of resistant starch, right? That's right. And that's why white potatoes actually do have value. The best part of the white potato is the resistant starch that you get when you let it cool down. So cook your mash, let it cool. Cook your mash, let it cool. Do that a couple of times. Get more resistant starch out of it. Means you can enjoy your leftovers too. Exactly. Okay. So that's, well, that's the soluble component. And then the other, I guess, uh, indigestible carbohydrate is the insoluble fiber. Right. So how, how is that affecting the gut health? Well, the insoluble fiber largely is passing through. Helps to mobilize your bowel movements, keep them moving through. But in terms of being prebiotic, 
this idea that they feed and nourish the healthy microbes and allow them to thrive. Insoluble fiber is generally not mm. doing that. Generally not doing that. Gotcha. So we've got insoluble fiber. We've got soluble fiber and resistant starch are the ones that are responsible for, for feeding those bacteria. We get the production of these very healthy metabolites. One of those, or the main one being short chain fatty acids. You talk about the diversity of your diet being absolute king, right? And the number one predictor of gut health. Yeah, It's a term you've coined. You use it a lot. Talk me through why diversity is important versus, say, just hitting uh, a fiber target with, say, one type of fiber, a supplement, for example. And part two of that question, even though I know that you prioritize diversity over everything else, is there any standout plants from a prebiotic fiber or resistant starch point of view? To answer the first question, it comes back to this idea that every single plant has its own unique mix of fiber, some soluble, some insoluble. Every single plant is going to be unique. And because of that, it's going to feed a unique mix of bacteria that live in your colon. Okay. So your food choices will reflect themselves in the makeup of your microbiome. When you eat a certain food, you eat a tomato, the microbes that thrive when you eat a tomato are going to multiply. On the flip side, if you take the tomato out of your diet, the microbes that I just described that thrive, they actually recede. They're starving. They're not getting the nutrition that they need in order to be able to thrive and grow. So when we create a diverse diet with as many different types of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts, legumes, every single plant in that diverse diet is supporting a different community of microbes. And when you diversify it, you're going to have a diverse microbiome. And biodiversity, my friend, biodiversity is the word of the year because it affects all ecosystems, including your gut, which is a small one. When you lose biodiversity, it's unhealthy. Biodiversity is also relevant to what we see happening in the Amazon rainforest with extinction events. And that's creating instability within that ecosystem. Any ecosystem, biodiversity is good. It's like diversifying your portfolio and your investments, right? (laughs) Yeah, just reduce your risk a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So the point being that you want a diverse diet because that supports a diverse microbiome. Now, are there certain foods that we select out? Let me put it this way. If every single plant is a friend, I want you to have as many friends as possible. But it's completely fine to recognize that there are superfoods that you can turn into your best friends. And I have a chapter in the book where I break this down and I talk about the ones, and I have an acronym that I use called F goals, F for fiber, F goals. And so I'll I'll just run through real quick and then we can talk about a couple of those if you want to. But F stands for fermented and fruit. I think the fruit is very important for the gut microbiome. G is for greens and grains, grains meaning whole grains. O is for omega-3 super seeds, flax, chia, hemp, A, aromatics, onions, garlic, shallots, leeks, great source of prebiotic fiber, by the way. L is for legumes. Legumes are foundational foods for the gut. Your gut thrives on the consumption. Anyone who tells you that legumes damage the gut, that's not what the studies say. We can come back to those if you want to, by the way. S, I had a tough time on S. Because I wanted to say shrooms, I wanted to say seaweed or sea veg, but I had to give it to my favorite out of all of them, which is 
sulforaphane. And what I'm referring to here, sulforaphane, is the phytochemical that you will find in cruciferous vegetables that absolutely crushes cancer, crushes it. Hundreds of studies to support the benefits of sulforaphane. But what is the top source? Broccoli sprouts. If you think broccoli is healthy, and if you think sulforaphane is healthy, broccoli sprouts, the immature form, have literally up to 100 times more sulforaphane than what you will find in mature broccoli. So that's my list, F goals. That's my core, that's my core. And your list may be be a little bit different. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Rather than going into each of those specifically, I think as you're reeling those off and, and something that I think some of the listeners may be thinking about, we have spoken about it before as well, is increasing the amount of fiber, particularly legumes, sometimes for someone who hasn't been eating a lot of those foods, uh, may come with a period of feeling slightly bloated or uncomfortable or uh, gassy. Is that normal? And what's your recommendation for bringing these foods into your diet in a manner that uh, you can tolerate and you don't sort of feel turned off by these dietary changes? So to start, you have been told that when you feel gas and bloating after you eat beans, that this is inflammation and that potentially these are the lectins disrupting your gut. And you have been told an untruth because when we actually study the effect of legumes on the gut, what we see is that legumes are foundational foods. Your gut is so much healthier when you are consuming legumes. And people who are telling you to take this out of your diet are doing you a disservice. Because when you take something out of your diet, like legumes or like whole grains, because it causes a little bit of gas and bloating or whatever it may be, the symptoms that you have. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm dismissing them. I take care of these patients every day and they're, they're dealing with real stuff. When you take it out of your diet, that's like saying you got a blown out knee and you're not going to have it fixed. You're just never going to walk again. So what happens to the person with a blown out knee who never walks again? They never feel pain in their knee, but their body deteriorates as a result. And so does their health throughout the entire body. It's a horrible idea. The same is true. We know that diversity is the number one determinant of a healthy gut. To take diversity away is to weaken your gut. What's actually going on when you get gas and bloating? It's shoddy unpacking. Your body is struggling to process and digest the food. The reason why is that we rely on our microbes so much to unpack fiber or to unpack FODMAPs for us that these are the two things that can be very disruptive, fiber and FODMAPs. And the person who has a damaged gut is the person who needs these foods the most, but we have to give them a process to allow them to accomplish this and be successful and have a mindset that will actually work. So what is that? In my book, I talk about treat your gut like it's a muscle. Treat your gut like it's a muscle. So if your gut is a muscle, then that means that when you exercise your gut, it will get stronger. 
But the flip side of that is if the person goes to the gym and has not been to the gym in months and they go to the gym and they bang out this ridiculous workout, what's going to happen to that person? They're going to be in pain. It's going to be miserable because they way overdid it. Their body was not adapted to what they were trying to do. The point is to exercise your gut within the framework of what your gut is actually capable of doing. So you may not be ready for the four bean chili if you have a damaged gut, but you may be able to get away with the little side of lentils and you ease your body into it over the course of time. And when you ramp up, that's exercising your gut in the same way that you and I go into the Mm. gym and starting with a light weight and working towards heavier weights. Beautifully put. It's very clear. Because I think that sometimes we're trained or taught or led to believe that the the gas and the bloating means that that food, we're not genetically made to digest that food. It's not for us. And we sort of make a hard decision and then never come back to that food. And, and I come across people all the time that have removed something, whether it's legumes or you, you and I have spoken about gluten. Maybe that's one we talk about because you're talking about not decreasing your diversity just for the sake of it. And I think it was the last episode or maybe two episodes ago, we spoke about gluten and you sort of went through the science around and and some concerns around perhaps too many people eliminating gluten, affecting diversity. Yeah. Well, so here's what we know. Right now, about one in three Americans are restricting their gluten intake. All right. Now, before I jump into the science, let me just say, I am not telling you to go crazy on gluten. I'm not telling you to bring more gluten into your life. What I'm telling you is that complete categorical eliminations are not good for your gut health. We see it with gluten. There are studies to show that the gut gets weaker as a result of gluten elimination. We see it with the low FODMAP diet. People go low FODMAP, they make their gut weaker as a result. What do you think will happen should we see a study with people adopting the carnivore diet? Because that's essentially another form of of a restrictive diet without fiber. That's the ultimate restrictive diet the complete absence of fiber. I want long-term data so that we can stop having people come forward with anecdotes saying that they're better on a carnivore diet in the short term. It must be frustrating for you because you must understand why they're getting some short-term relief potentially, but at the same time understanding that this is not conducive to A, gut health long-term and B, overall health. If you restrict a person's diet to literally just eating meat, by definition, they are eliminating all processed foods. Even with paleo studies, I'm convinced that it's the elimination of processed foods that can help people achieve health benefits. But the the, the problem is that there is a trade-off. You may have short-term gain, whether we're talking about carnivore, keto, even paleo. You may have short-term gain. The scare is the long-term pain. It's the risk of heart disease. And that actually brings us back to the gluten topic kind of nicely. Because there is a study where they looked at people who they confirmed for a fact that they did not have celiac disease. All right. Now, celiac disease is an autoimmune condition where your immune system attacks your intestine in response to gluten. And we can talk more about celiac. It's a totally different issue. That's a genetic issue. And if you have celiac disease, you need to be gluten-free. There is no debate about that. And I'll tell my patients that. But, and that's like what, one or two percent or something like that? It's one percent. One percent of the population. It's about one percent of the population. If you do not have celiac disease, when they study this population, what do they see? Dramatically increased risk of heart disease. All right. So the trade off 
is that you are giving up gluten. And I'm arguing that you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater because your fear of gluten is having you give up the number one source of whole grains in the American diet. And you increase your risk in these epidemiologic studies, increase your risk of having heart disease. Now, is that just that bee phenomenon? That's what people always say. Is that just that bee phenomenon? Okay, let's dig a little deeper. There was a paleo study from Australia and they looked at people who did a paleo diet versus just a diet of moderation. Okay, no, no strict rules. And they actually parsed it out into not so hardcore paleo versus like the hardcore paleo. All right, so what's the difference there? The difference is that the hardcore paleo are no grain, no grain, zero grain at all. So what happens in this population? They ate the same amount of meat, okay? Whether you were hardcore paleo or moderate paleo, you ate the same amount of red meat, but the hardcore paleo had way higher levels of TMAO. TMAO, the Cleveland Clinic, arguably the number one heart program in the, in the United States, is studying TMAO and showing us that this is a legitimate risk for coronary artery disease, also a risk for stroke, also a risk for chronic kidney disease. Okay, TMAO is bad news. It's produced by our microbes when we eat red meat. Carnitine in the red meat gets transformed by our microbes and ultimately leads to the production of TMAO. You do not want this. It basically means vascular disease, okay? In this paleo study, if you were hardcore paleo, you ate the same amount of red meat as the person who's moderate paleo, but your TMAO levels were higher. Why would that be? Here's what they found. They were less on whole grains. Because they were less on whole grains, it led to the growth of one specific bacteria called Hungatella. Hungatella produces TMAO. So it all comes full circle. We see in population studies that when you eliminate whole grains, when you eliminate gluten, you increase your risk of heart disease. By the way, we have meta-analyses and systematic reviews that show that the consumption of whole grains protect us from heart disease, from death by heart disease, from mortality, period. We have powerful studies to show their health benefits. And now we also have these granular studies looking at the microbiome and identifying a single species in a person who goes paleo and says, this Crazy. species of bacteria, because you went paleo, yeah. you've exposed yourself to risk. And I mean, that makes you think that a similar thing is likely to happen if you were going full carnival and removing all plants. You'd that, expect the same thing. That's, that, that is driving down the highway and not having a break on. That's driving down the highway of heart disease and not having a break on. And that's why when we have long-term data, the people who claim that they're eating a carnivore diet right now, if they actually are, which is, I don't know how we verify that. And to do it, you have to do it properly to make sure you're getting every nutrient. You have to eat nose to tail. Right. If you're not doing that, it's deficient in a number of nutrients. I will be shocked, shocked if the majority of people who eat a carnivore diet, like if they do this long term, I would be shocked if they live to 60. And we haven't even spoken about colorectal cancer. How does that play into this? Well, well, we know, we know that red meat has been associated with increased risk. Red meat and also processed meat have been identified as the World Health Organization as known carcinogens. They increase the risk of developing colorectal cancer. And part of the way that this happens, people love to try to debate this and say, oh, that's not real or the risk is not that high. The risk is high when you're doing it, when you're eating meat the way that we eat meat in the United States and Australia. You know, when you're banging out red meat five times a week, which is what we do, that risk is legit. And part of the problem actually comes back to the microbiome. Because when you eat meat, this is one of the things I talk about in fiber fuels, you create a change in the microbiome that is what we call bile tolerant. 
go and listen to any of the people out there, the experts, like Chris Kresser will talk about, he'll readily admit it's bile-tolerant microorganisms. Guess what the bile-tolerant microorganisms do? They take bile that is produced by your liver and they convert it into secondary bile salts. Secondary bile salts have been very closely tied to colorectal cancer risk. Secondary bile salts are not good news. So here's my point. Postbiotics, the idea of the metabolites of our microbes, I said in the beginning or earlier that I'm really excited about the metabolites. Well, there's two sides to that story. There's this side over here with short chain fatty acids that are anti-inflammatory and healing throughout your entire body all the way up to your brain. And then there's this other side, which is the nasty stuff. TMAO. TMAO and secondary bile salts. TMAO connected to vascular disease, the number one killer. Secondary bile salts connected to like six or seven different types of cancer, the number two killer. And it depends on your diet that ultimately will determine which one of those you get. Those short chain fatty acids also are an energy source, right? For the colon cells themselves. That's actually the predominant source of energy for your colon cells. That's correct. So we, you, you're talking there about the, the meat itself having an effect and in increasing the risk of colorectal cancer. Does the feeding of the fiber and the short chain fatty acids reduce risk of, of colorectal cancer? There was a major study that I know you're familiar with, came out in January of 2019 in The Lancet, Andrew Reynolds. It was a mega meta-analysis, mega systematic review and meta-analysis of fiber, dietary fiber, not Metamucil or Benefiber, not, not some supplement, no. all right? So multiple, these people more than likely have diversity in their diet. Right, and, but the, and they're consuming, yeah, exactly, because it's in their diet. They're consuming high-fiber foods, right? Mm. So, and it's, it's unlikely that they literally are just eating one food all day long. And what they found in this study was that fiber was associated with decreased risk of death, decreased risk of heart disease, decreased risk of, heart, of death from heart disease. And then on the topic of cancer, decreased risk of colorectal cancer, decreased risk of breast cancer. All right. We just named some of the top killers right there. And I think yeah, it was 15 to 30% lower risk of premature death, total death. That's right. And then, so when we analyze studies, taking a step back for a moment, we talked about this pyramid of like quality of studies with systematic review and meta-analysis at the top and randomized controlled trials below that. And down at the bottom being laboratory studies or anecdotes, okay? When we, when we take a look at this, here's what I want to see. There is no legitimate scientist that will tell you that one study tells the whole story. It's impossible. I want to see the layers of evidence mm. and I want to see if multiple layers of evidence are pointing in the same direction. That's how you develop the consensus. That's how you develop consensus, Right. And this so, is one of the interesting things because quite often I'll get sent a one study like you're talking about. And something that I, I try and explain to people is one study is cool and, and, and science is happening at a rapid pace. But although it is happening so quickly, the consensus doesn't change quickly. Right. The consensus takes a, a lot longer to change. Not right. one study will change that. Right. Because you have to convince people. You have to convince people. But you know, when we talk about seeing different layers pointing in the same direction, when I say whole grains reduce your risk of heart disease, and then I can zoom into the microbiome and tell you that Hungatella is the specific bacteria responsible for protecting you, you know, mm. that an increase in Hungatella when you get rid of whole grains, right? Yeah. Or when we talk about colorectal cancer, and I can say, okay, fiber reduces your risk of, of, of developing colorectal cancer. And then we zoom in and what we see is that short-chain fatty acids, short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, directly inhibits colorectal cancer cells. And one of the ways, there's a number of ways that it does this, but one of the ways that it does this, I find to be absolutely fascinating. 
and incredibly powerful, which is there's this thing called HDACs, histone deacetylases, okay? HDACs, HDACs. The butyrate is able to basically impair the HDAC, which is a necessary component for cell turnover. So what is cancer? Cancer is growth that is out of control. So how do you stop cancer? You stop it from growing. If you can stop it from growing, you've just cured it. And that's what butyrate does to colorectal cancer. That's incredible. Does, does, has, does um, Dr. William Lee, right? You know him. Oh, yeah. Has he looked into that with any of his work? Or does he look at a different area of cancer? Well, so William Lee, who, by the way, his book, Eat to Beat Disease, was a phenomenal book. New York Times bestselling. I love that book. And you know he talks about different processes occurring in the body. And his specific area of expertise is angiogenesis. But he also brings attention to the microbiome as well. And for what it's worth, William Lee enjoyed my book. He read it and I was taken aback by the endorsement that he gave me Hmm. because he loved the deeper dive into the microbiome. He talks about five different parts. I'm talking about the microbiome and I'm taking this deep dive into- I think that's what's great about your book. It's what separates it from a lot of books out there is that you've been able to use the entire book to zoom into this area which- the science, there's so much cutting edge science. There's not a, there's not a whole lot of resources out there yeah. that have done this. Well, and the other thing that was important to me is that I wanted it to be in a language that literally any person could pick up this book and not only read it, but actually enjoy reading it. So I took a specific tone in the book to make it fun. Okay. That was by intention. But the flip side of this is that I was meticulous with my science. I was meticulous. There's over 600 references. And I can tell you, I read well more than a thousand studies. And at one point when I had my first draft, there were 800 references. Okay. And I had to take 200 of them out. But the point from my perspective is if you pull back the curtain, you're absolutely right. The cutting edge science is there. But when you're reading the book, I want it to be fun to read. Yeah. And it's a great book for health professionals to read as well. Even though it's not written as a textbook, it's, it's very much for the person at home as well as the, the practitioner or the gastroenterologist that wants to, to learn. And, and to, I wouldn't say an easy read, probably is an easy read for a gastroenterologist, to get a nice introduction into an area of science that isn't covered in the standard medical course. I honestly believe that doctors will, will benefit from reading this book. And I want them to take my references. I stand behind my references 100%. I got nothing to hide. I'm putting it out there. You want them? Come to my website. I'll give them to you for free. And I hope doctors will go and read these, read these references because it will open their eyes in the same way that it did for me. I was the same doctor as them a couple years ago. And then my eyes got opened up. Before we close this one out, butyrate. I know that often people are looking for the magic pill. What stops one from supplementing with butyrate? Would it, would it reach the, the large intestine? No. No, it, it doesn't even come close to reaching the large intestine. It, it, butyrate is a short chain fatty acid. So because of that, what that means is that it's of a chemical structure that it gets absorbed mm-hmm. like almost immediately in the small intestine. It gets nowhere close if you were to supplement it to where you need to deliver it. And the other problem is... Is there, is there brands out there selling that? They are. There are. Yeah. They are, yeah. and, and With and, claiming gut health benefits or... As a nutrient. Yeah, no, they're, they're claiming gut health benefits and there will, I'm sure, be more after my book comes out. But, you know, in the same way that David Sinclair's book created this entire supplement industry for- NMN. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So 
I, I think there will be even more of these. But the point is that your body has a natu- natural way, because it's not just butyrate. It's butyrate, acetate, propionate, and it's in the right ratios. And your body will naturally mm-hmm. regulate that. The bacteria are our friends. They are the gatekeepers. They're going to give you the balance that you actually need. Trying to supplement is to not trust them. That doesn't make any sense. The entire idea of using butyrate is because of what they've given us with butyrate. And so why not just feed them? Feed them with fiber. You've heard it there, folks. There is no magic pill. Well, the magic pill actually is diversity. Yeah. A wealth of knowledge. Thank you for joining me again. You've, you've done it again. To close this one out and leave room for further conversations, as a parting note, what can people expect from your book? When's it out? And how can they get it? All right. The book launches in North America on May 12th. There are ways that people overseas can get their hands on an American copy of the book. It is fully my expectation that this book is coming to Australia and coming to the UK. So if you want to wait for that, that's perfectly fine too. But there are ways to get it. What can you expect? This book is for everyone. I legitimately believe that. And here's why. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be suffering with digestive issues, autoimmune issues, obesity, metabolic problems like diabetes, or you could be perfectly healthy like you, Simon. Every single one of us benefit when we optimize our gut health. Some of us need it more than others, but all of us benefit when we pay attention to this community of microbes. And when we get them in alignment with our health needs, great things happen. And that's what this book is designed to do. It's going to deliver you an approach. I got a four-week plan. I got over 70 recipes. I got shopping lists for the week. It gives you not just the knowledge on how to get it back. It gives you the actual plan to follow, the blueprint. That, I think, is tremendously powerful. So Fiber Fuel, it's coming out May 12th. There we go. And everyone knows where to find you on social media, but I'll put the, the link into the show notes. I forgot to ask you, the, the beta uh, online program. Uh, yes. So very excited to share this as well. People have been reaching out to me from across the world saying, I want you to be my doctor. There's a problem, which is that in the United States, I would have loved to do it. But in the United States, I'm not allowed to do that. You can only do like within your state. Is that how it works? A person would have to fly to South Carolina and physically come to my clinic to see me. So it would be extremely expensive for most people to be able to do this. There are conversations that I want to have with all of my patients, whether you are literally my patient or you are on the other side of the world in Australia. I want to have these conversations to empower you with the knowledge necessary to take control of your gut health and to optimize it. That is not a 30-minute conversation. That is not a podcast. That is an organized curriculum developed over weeks to take you there and to show you exactly what you need and how to interact with your care provider. So I'm launching the full course in June. It's going to be an online course, but we've been beta testing it. And we did our first small group in December, and I was taken aback by the results. Uniformly positive from everyone who participated. Everyone who was in it had more than 10 years of severe digestive issues. Multiple people taking back their health. Powerful stories. I wish I could share them. I really can't. Powerful, amazing stories. And some examples of people discovering things that their doctor had not thought of. Asking their doctor about it. Getting the tests that they needed and transforming their health. 
that's the key part. It's closing that loop. You know, and I get a lot of emails from people who have listened to our episodes and are looking for some help in terms of finding the right practitioner, or maybe they they have a great practitioner, but just understanding the questions to ask, right. having, having that that basic information to hand to their practitioner yeah. is key. I'll pop that in the show notes too. Yeah, That's super cool. excited about it. And I, and I think, you know, I, I view it as a compliment to the book. All right. So the book is your introduction and the book is great because it is resource intensive at a low cost. I mean, I spent a year writing this book, right? So you're getting a year of my effort, my highest focus that I've had in my entire life. And you're getting that for, you know, 30 bucks. The course is different. It's for the person who wants the deeper dive. You want to get deeply into this, explore gut health with me. That's how you do it. You do the course. Beautiful. Come back and join me in a year or so. I think the the science in this space is evolving so quickly that I'm sure there'll be something for us to chat about. Oh my gosh. It's crazy how it's evolving. I can't wait to see what happens. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Thanks, man. There we go, friends. Dr. B and myself in New York City. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I hope you took away some new learnings. I know that I certainly did. I'm certainly not sure the, the carnivore diet is looking so good for the microbiome, that's for sure. Please do share your feedback on social media. Dr. B and myself would love to hear from you. The best way of finding him is at the Gut Health MD on Instagram. And of course, if you're wanting to grab a copy of Fiber Fueled, which I assume most of you, if not all of you, will want to, I've put links in the show notes for the best website, depending on where you live. When you read the book, if you share any of your learnings on social media, please tag me so I can read and repost. I'd love to hear how this book is helping you upgrade your gut health. Finally, Dr. B, thank you, mate. It's an honor to have you on the show and I'm incredibly grateful to be able to share your message. And I look forward to catching up soon and celebrating in person. All right, let's wind this one up until we meet again, friends. And remember, you know the drill. Don't stand me up. See you here next week.